I love second chances. That's because I'm very reliant on them. Uh, I'm sure most of us are. Uh, we need more than just one, I, I suspect, don't we, in life, that we have a God that forgives us, that loves us, that keeps on renewing us and giving us new opportunities to come again to his saving grace, to his love. And as we look at Mark's gospel, as we dig into the story of Jesus, I think what a, you know, what a wonderful way to spend a few minutes together to be looking at Jesus, who describes himself here as the Son of Man, the one who will establish the kingdom of heaven here on earth for us. And as we look at Jesus and we look at his love, his compassion, we also look at the the different elements that make up these stories, like the crowd, like the roof. And how is it that somehow this man who was on the outside, the man that was paralyzed, gets right into the throne room, if you like, right into the presence of Jesus, the touchable, tangible presence of Jesus. And Levi, who's an outcast, who's being heckled, who's being verbally abused, suddenly having Jesus in his room having dinner. It's extraordinary, the grace that is in the gospel. And our stories, one of the reasons that we're asking everyone to maybe write their story or record their stories, uh, as Nate said last week, you might not think it's significant, but it can be huge significant to another person. Our stories shape our world and the world around us, and your story will be a gift to someone else. At least one other person will benefit from you telling your story, however you want to do that. And thank you so much to people who've been sending them in in all sorts of different ways. Uh, I was in London yesterday to see uh, the David Hockney exhibition, which I highly recommend. Really immersive, colourful, brilliant experience. Uh, but on my way through King's Cross, I got stopped by one of those guys with a clipboard and a kind of t- a lanyard and a very intense expression. I don't know what you do when that happens. I have a variety of responses, sometimes not the best, sometimes a bit hurrying by, hiding behind my fringe or whatever. But occasionally I do think, no, come on, Judy, at least have the conversation. And I wasn't running late. I was in a good space. The sun was out and this lovely, beautiful man said, can you just spare me a few moments? And uh, I said, oh, yeah. And he he told me his name and just said, "Um, we're here looking at knife crime and gang crime right here in the city. And he spoke to me for about probably three or four minutes. And you know, sometimes you kind of know there's a script, don't you? (laughs) And they're following a script or you feel overwooed and slightly, you know. um, But he wasn't like that. He was just so genuine and sincere. And he said, you know, if you support us, this is what will happen for one young person. This is how they will be released. This is how they will get their second chance, if you like. And he did it in such a way that I I was moved to sign up for it. And I said, you're really good at this. Can I just say, I think you're really good at what you do. And he said, well, I was in a gang. This was me. And of course he was good at it because he knows what it's like. He knows why those people are caught up in what they're caught up in. And so he's had a second chance. And what he's done is he's not just been grateful, and we didn't talk about faith or anything like that, but he knows he's been given a second chance at life. And so he is going out and using his story, his passion, you could see it all over his face, his passion to touch other people. Uh, in Solcombe, in, uh, in Devon, uh, where I spent a lovely week uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, in South Devon, there is something quite unusual. I don't know if the, the picture can come up on the screen. Um, 
This is known fondly as the sea tractor meeting with the Solcum ferry. So the sea tractor is the thing on my right, and the ferry is the lovely bunting thing on here. And you can see the tractor in the sea meeting the sea ferry. And what happens is the tractor moves down the beach into deeper water, and you don't have the ferry in view at all. It just stands there and waits. And it's a bit of a bumpy ride, and you all go on the tractor, and you go out in to this sort of shallow bit of the sea and then you wait and you pay your money and then just coming round the horizon you can always just see this lovely sight of the ferry with its bunting coming round the bay and towards you and we went on it a couple of weeks ago and I was with this uh, little boy and uh, he was overexcited. he was so excited he was almost dancing with joy he could not contain the fact that he was on it he was on the sea tractor and then when the ferry arrived and everybody was really excited, he said, oh, I thought that was it. I thought we were just on the sea tractor. He had no comprehension that we were going to go on onto the ferry. And the fact that he then got to go actually onto the ferry and that goes right out to sea and it's a wonderful experience uh, just completely blew his mind. And watching his joy made me think, a little bit, and I've, I reflect a lot on this particular vehicle. I'm not obsessed with transport, but uh, this particular thing I think is quite old school and quite beautiful, and kids love it. They can't get enough of it. Um, I was thinking, do we live as if the sea tractor bit is all there is? Because we're waiting for something. And what happens is the sea tractor's there waiting and then the ferry arrives. And I know, and some of you who know me well, know I love my life, I love the present tense, I love being in the moment. And I sometimes struggle to put myself into the future. Are we living as if the sea tractor is all there is? Or are we leaning for a kingdom that is beyond this one? A heaven that makes everything different here on earth. Because these two stories are that. They make everything different. Jesus does not do what we expect him to do, does he? Certainly not in this first story. He doesn't. You know, we would think he would heal the man on the spot. That would be the first thing. But he says, oh, your sins are forgiven you. Controversial, radical. Um, and yet so exciting to see that actually all Jesus did in his story was keeping on pointing us to a world beyond this one, to eternity. So this man is lowered into a house in Capernaum. There's a huge crowd that stops him coming to Jesus. I read a commentator this week that said it was Jesus' own house in Capernaum. Uh, others don't think that. Uh, you can make your own mind up, but uh, it may well be that it was his house. But one thing we do know is he'd drawn a massive crowd. And in the Gospel of Mark, crowds are mentioned, I think, 40 times before chapter 10. So crowds are all around Jesus. This is, you know, his ministry is taking off. He's always around people. They're crowding around him. But actually, in relation to this, the crowd is a barrier. The crowd is a barrier to what Jesus wants to do. And interestingly, and I think in the evangelical world we can take a lot from this, crowds are not really what Jesus is into. He's into individuals. We can get obsessed with numbers, can't we, when we think of revival, and rightly so, but we know that revival starts here in the heart of every single one of us. And so Jesus is not really into the crowds. He's into the people, the individuals. And I wondered, are praying about this today. What are the barriers? What are the crowds in my life, in your life, that stop us coming into Jesus' presence? 
Maybe it's our busyness. Maybe it's our disappointment. Maybe it's our anxiety. Because the challenge here is to come to Jesus who says, my child. He sees the man. He's full of love. He's full of compassion. And the second thing is this roof. As we heard Ivan read, the friends dug in to the roof to get this guy uh, to Jesus. They actually dug in. And I was thinking for us at Riverside, what are the roofs that we have perhaps put on our expectations of what God can do? Because maybe, you know, some of us you know, some of you are very bright, <laughs> I'll say some of us, some of you are very, very bright and intellectual, and maybe sometimes that's a positive thing, and maybe sometimes it can be a barrier. Maybe our cynicism can be a barrier. Maybe the disappointments that we've had in our life can somehow build that roof. And I felt very strongly that Jesus was just saying to us here today, take the roof off again of what you expect that I'm able to do. I won't do what you expect, but I will act. And I think that's the thing, he's not predictable. That's one of the things I love about Jesus, but also throws me off at times because he doesn't do it in the gospel according to Judy. He does it in the gospel according to Jesus and the two don't always look the same. What are the needs, the desires, the prayers that maybe we've even not stopped praying, we've stopped praying, we've, we've started to limit what Jesus can do. And the friends here are brilliant, aren't they? I love the friends. They, they show such determination, such grit. They will not give up. They will not give up on their friend. And Jesus sees their faith, but actually he also sees the faith of the man. And I've found that helpful in the commentaries I've read, because sometimes you think, well, is it just based on the faith of the friends? But actually he sees their faith, the guy on the mat. And I just want to say to you, if you're on the mat today, rather than one of, we all like being the pole bearer, don't we? That's a lot easier but when you're actually on the mat and life is tough and grim and you're feeling helpless or you feel you've lost all your agency or your choices he sees their faith he sees this guy and we don't know whether he's hanging on to the mat we don't know what he's doing uh, but he's hanging on he's there he's let them carry him in in other words all of them have faith And I think sometimes we see this as being all about the pole carriers. I once heard a guy called James Lawrence, who some of you know, say, we all have our time on the mat. And at that time in my life, I thought, yeah, I think I'm more of a pole bearer. And then something happened where I had quite a long season on the mat. (laughs) And that's a whole different ball game, isn't it? It's, we, we, we find that much harder, but Jesus sees it. And we as a church, we're not there yet, but we are wanting to look at accessibility more and more. We have brilliant people like Ali, like Michelle Worthington, Leah, Kirsten, loads of people who are helping us look at our accessibility so that we don't put barriers in the way of people coming to Jesus. Because the way this man is treated is right. He is given agency. He gets to stand up. He gets to make that choice and decision. But the crowd are in the way. And how do we as church look at church to make it accessible for all who come? Interestingly, um, Michelle did some training with us as staff team about sometimes translations of the Bible don't particularly help us in this, do they? People are called a paralytic well, we wouldn't really want to say that now, would we? And that's surely not what Jesus does. 
In fact, Jesus does the absolute opposite. And he doesn't talk to the friends. He doesn't talk to anyone else. He sees the man and he talks directly to him. And he says, which is easier to say to this man, your sins are forgiven or to say, take up your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. How random when this guy is crying out for healing, but first he receives forgiveness. Why? Because Jesus sees your heart first. He sees my heart first. He sees that our greatest need, as we heard last week, is a relationship with him. And sin, basically, is anything that we do that builds our identity on something else. We are all here, sinners saved by grace, needing his grace, his forgiveness, so that that sea tractor joins the ferry, so that we live on eternally with Jesus. Max Licardo says, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need was money, God would have sent us an economist. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us our saviour. That's true for all of us, every single one of us. And if you don't know that yet uh, in your life, he has so much love for you. He has second chance, third chance. He goes on loving you, however far you feel you've drifted off even today. And the critics are there saying, you know, what is he, what is he doing? Why, who forgives sins? Nobody can do that but God alone. They haven't realized that Jesus is God. And so he tells them he is the son of man. Now to us, that might just be a phrase, but to them, that is so controversial that's him naming the fact that he is God that he is the one that in the Old Testament was prophesied about in Daniel 7 one of my favorite descriptions of the kingdom Daniel 7 there is a vision of the son of man and listen to what it says in my vision I looked and there before me was one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven he was given authority glory and sovereign power over all nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And that's the kingdom that you and I are part of. It never has been destroyed. I mean, if you're not a believer today, I think one of the questions that I would ask, and I asked when I was not a believer, I've been recording my story over the last couple of weeks, actually, you know, that, that's the thing that really amazes us about Jesus, that he is the eternal one, that he is the rescuer, that he is the one that has come for us. In the story that some of you might have learnt at Sunday school where there's Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, said it right, um, not in rehearsal, but here I have, um, in the fire, they go into the fire and they say, God, whether you're with us or whether you're not, we're just going in for it, we're going for it. And what happens? There's a fourth figure that appears in the fire that looked like what? The son of man. So Jesus here is not just forgiving sins. He's not just healing a person externally, all brilliant. He is saying, I am the one who was prophesied about, who has come to save you, to call the right, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And oh, I mentioned our stories. We're going to hear now from James Tomlinson's story. Um, and I thought this was applicable because actually a friend brought him to know Jesus. And uh, that's true of so many of our stories, isn't it? That actually it was friends or people that we saw Jesus in that invited us. And then we'll talk some more.
Hi, I'm James, and uh, yeah, I'd like to tell you just a little bit uh, of my story. Uh, so, uh, when I was uh, a kid, I grew up in a place called Norwich, and uh, I grew up uh, not believing in God, really quite anti-Christian. I, I used to walk past those people who sometimes spoke about Jesus along the street corner and thought they were a bit crazy. Uh, and then at around the age of 15, uh, 16, I had a friend at school who was a Christian, and he was pretty insistent. He was quite brave, actually, in class. He'd, uh, if the conversation came up, he'd stand up for his faith, and I used to think he was a bit crazy. But he started to invite me to go to church, and so initially I did the best thing I could, which was to say, no way, I'm not going, I'm not going with you. But it was the fact that he was persistent in asking me, and also actually just that there was something different about this friend, uh, and that he was prepared to stand up for his faith in Jesus. And so I went along uh, to this church, and what struck me when I went along was that there were a whole load of people like me, people who were uh, excited about their relationship with Jesus, lots of families, lots of uh, people of all different ages. And I started to, to think, well, maybe, maybe I, could, I should believe in Jesus. And I started to, to um, read, the, uh, think up, read the Bible and I started to think maybe I was a Christian. And then one day there was a talk at church. Uh, and at the end of the, of the talk, there was a leaflet that was available. And I took that leaflet home. And the leaflet simply said, well, what is a Christian? And so I read it thinking, well, I am a Christian. And it basically said that everything that I thought made me a Christian, actually it wasn't what made me a Christian. It wasn't that I did good things or that I read the Bible or that I prayed, but that simply that a Christian was someone who had recognised who Jesus is, what Jesus had done for them in dying for them and making the way to Jesus possible. And so I chose at that moment, when I read that I realised actually I'm not a Christian, but it had this prayer and it explained that if you prayed this prayer and put your trust in Jesus, that that would be what would make you a Christian. And so I sat at home in my room and I prayed that prayer. And the way this leaflet was written, it was written in a way that made it sound like something would really happen and change. And nothing really did. There was no sort of fireworks or thunder or lightning. And so I wasn't quite sure if I prayed it right, actually. So I prayed it again just to make sure. And then I decided that actually nothing's really changed, but if God's true and if he's real, he's heard that prayer. And, and you know, actually, while something didn't change immediately, over the next weeks and months, there was a definite shift. Uh, that selfish bit of me that, that, uh, that didn't want to help others, that didn't want to care for others, God started to change that. In fact, uh, the job I do is directly out of result of the fact that Jesus changed me at, at, at that moment. And you know, the interesting thing is a few weeks after I prayed that prayer, my, my friend finally got up courage to tell me exactly how to be a Christian. And actually, when he told me how to do that, I said, actually, I've already done it. I've already put my faith in Jesus. And actually looking back on that, that's a long time ago now, but it's been an adventure. It's got its ups, its downs. But you know something, knowing that I can put my trust in Jesus, knowing that he's got me, um, I was thinking earlier today, actually, there was a particular moment in my life where things were pretty difficult. I felt like I hadn't got really much else to stand on. And I was reminded of an old hymn that says, on Christ the solid rock we stand, or other ground is sinking sand. And all that's saying is that Christ Jesus is a bit like solid ground that we can put our, our feet on. And, and actually often in life, and I think particularly in the last few years, the ground has felt very shaky and uncertain, and we can put our trust in him. And even when everything else is unreliable and is stripped away, I can still put my trust in him. And I can still say that all these years later.
Fantastic. James couldn't be here today, but he, he knows that we're sharing that. Um, and I love that I love that line that actually he, he said to his friend, I've already done it. But what came before that was his friend kept asking. And I think many times, if, if you're anything like me, we, we try once, we get a bit sort of downcast, we feel embarrassed, so we don't ask again. In fact, my neighbours have had to ask me to invite them to the Christmas service, so don't let me forget. Um, but but that's, that's what we like sometimes, isn't it? And yet persist is what we see in this. Uh, then we go on to Levi. Now, Levi, Levi is a guy who um, was probably working for Herod. Herod Antipas, it says here. Sounds like something you might have in a meal, Antipasta. But Levi was working, and he was being heckled. There's no doubt about it. He was charging a toll for something that used to be free. So people used to pass into Capernaum without having to pay anything, and suddenly they're being charged for it. And we know what that feels like living in Birmingham. Those of us who bought diesel when we were told that was a good thing, and all of that. Um, we won't go into that now, because there's a myriad of emotions around it, but we know it's good for our city. Um, but... He was charging, so he was getting heckled every day. So you imagine this crowd with Jesus comes past. What does Levi expect? Condemnation, because that's all he's known. And then suddenly Jesus says, follow me, and goes to his house for dinner. (laughs) And that's how radical Jesus is, that instead of joining with the crowd, he stands out and he invites Levi, the outcast, the one that fell on the edge, to come to the table, to come to the feast. And Jesus often paints the picture of the kingdom as a feast. And I love that. I think if ever there was a picture, I don't know about you, but some of my happiest moments are food with family, food with friends. There's just something very special about that. And that's the picture of the kingdom, that all are welcome. On your seats there, there are some new leaflets that we've done just to sort of bring together everything as a church that we're doing under one roof, if you like, here and beyond, to say, come to the table, there is a place for you. Now, we nearly called this leaflet, Can We Help You? And and I oppose that. Because I thought, no, actually, there's a place for you. It's not can we help you. It's like we're here in Birmingham and we can help each other. There's a place for all of us at the table. And you'll see that we've listed all the different things that are happening with money advice, with bereavement journey, with stay and play, with chaplaincy, all the different things that are going on. Breathe, we've always already mentioned. So many different things. The pantry. And our heart with those, and this is where I think, and we can discuss this because I know some people have passionate views about this. Some people have even asked me, are we a church of social action or are we a gospel, good news, missional church? I do not see a difference. (laughs) And we can chat about that. But this is the kingdom, isn't it? This is saying all are welcome to the feast, whether you're Levi, whether you're the guy that needs healing, whoever you are, whether you need external healing, healing from debt, freedom from debt, help with something, We come to the table, and the reason that we do that is, if you look at that first story, the man's physical need was not as important as his need for Jesus. And that's why we're doing all of the things we're doing. We want to bring about the kingdom. We want to show his love, his mercy, his compassion. But our heart is that people would meet with a Jesus who loves them, forgives them, and wants a relationship, as we heard from James there. 
the opposite of what we expect happens again. In Isaiah 41 verse 17, we read this, when the poor and needy search for water and there is none and their tongues are parched from thirst, then I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will never abandon them. That's the heart that is in Jesus. The heart is in the Father God, that actually he will never abandon us, that he wants us to come. Why? Because he gives us living water that will never run out. Mag Duggan says, Jesus, like the good shepherd that he is, leads his sheep not to water, but to himself. He calls them to come to him and to receive from him water that will never dry up and will never be anything less than they need. And that's for you and I today. That's for the people that we might invite, the people that we might bring along. And we're invited to an eternal banquet. We're not just invited to the sea tractor. We're invited to get on the ferry. We're invited to launch. Uh, Dane Ortland, who some of you know, uh, I'm really enjoying reading uh, a lot of his stuff. He says, the dominant note left ringing in all of our ears after reading the Gospels is the way the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, forgives those who least deserve it, yet deeply desire it. And that's all of us, those who least deserve it, yet deeply desire it. The man on the mat thought he had a need, his friends thought he had a need, and he did, but his greatest need was the salvation that he found in Jesus. And he knew that Jesus saw him. And that's so important with all of these things that we're doing, that every person feels seen and feels heard and understood. And as we come to a close, I love this by N.T. Wright. I think it's one of the best descriptions of church that I've come across. He says this, The church is not a society of perfect people doing great work. It is a society of forgiven sinners repaying their unpayable debt of love by working for Jesus' kingdom in every way they can, knowing themselves to be unworthy of the task. Does that seem a fair description? (laughs) It certainly did to me when I read it. I thought, yes, That's us, that's who we are. We are like that guy who I met on the street yesterday saying, look, this was me once. I met with this savior. I met with someone who found me, who sought me out, who found me, who healed me inside and out. And he, you know, I should have said earlier, he does heal the man. He heals him inside and then out. But first and foremost, he's interested in what's in our hearts. And so as we come to respond, we're going to take communion together in a moment. But I thought just to conclude, I'd get us just to spend a little moment just in our own quiet and in our own reflection. As these are two big stories in the gospel, they're stories where Jesus does something incredible for both men. And maybe you've lost sight of what he wants to do for you. Maybe you've lost faith in what he wants to do for you. Maybe you've never yet known this saving love that both men find, this feast that all are welcome to. Let's just spend a time maybe giving him our disappointments once again, giving him our skepticism and our cynicism, making our way boldly through the crowd to meet with Jesus today, ripping the roof off our expectations of what he can do, that where we've grown weary, where we've grown cynical, that he would just take that off again and make us be the one that almost runs through the crowds to him. 
Lord, our, our deepest, greatest need is that of a saviour. Thank you that you've given us a second chance, of a fresh start. Lord, we just spend a couple of minutes now with you, asking that you would remove the barriers that stop us coming to you, stop us believing with faith. We name them before you, Lord.